Well, as we think of overcoming through Christ, let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 uh, this morning. Psalm 32. You know, I would imagine that most of you are familiar with a GPS. I want you to listen to this little story by Dr. DeHaan. He shared this some time back. When we went on a weekend road trip with some friends, we had our first experience using a global positioning system. The GPS has a female voice. So our friends John and Mary called their device Gladys. We programmed our destination into the GPS, and she did her job and plotted our course. Then we sat back, having put our faith in this little navigator, we let her direct us. Turn right and point two miles, Gladys said confidently. She was right. Gladys seems to be always right. In fact, when we made an unexpected detour to get gas, she got a bit insistent. Please make a U-turn. Please make a U-turn at your earliest convenience. That's something we can all identify with, huh? Yeah. But then Dahan went on to make this spiritual analogy. No matter how far you've traveled in the wrong direction, it's not too late to turn around. God is ready to forgive and restore. If you're headed down the wrong road, please make a U-turn. Well, in our passage for today, you have David's glorious testimony of getting his heart right with God. He made a U-turn, so to speak, spiritually in his life. And I want you to follow as I read about this in the first five verses of Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. For I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Psalm 32 is classified as a penitential psalm. Another psalm like that is Psalm 51. And the two are actually related as uh, to David's adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, her husband. We see that clearly in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. However, Psalm 32 follows chronologically after Psalm 51 as David looks back to the things he learned regarding his sin and the joy of forgiveness. This is why this psalm is referred to by the Hebrew rendering. You can see that there at the top of the psalm, a maskil, meaning a contemplation or instruction. And this psalm is about both. 
In fact, it's possible that this is the fulfillment of what David stated in Psalm 51 and verse 13. And we read that this morning from Psalm 51. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Well, beloved as believers, you too have testimonies like David, not only of salvation, but also of deliverances from sin in your life. These are the things you are to share with others to encourage them, to instruct them, to exhort them, and even to warn them. You want to be of great help to the next generation of believers in their spiritual battle, just as David was to his generation. And so I want you to consider with me three lessons, three lessons that David learned regarding his sin so that you might learn to fear God and be a faithful witness of His grace. And what I'm going to share with you this morning is not new. You've heard these lessons before, just from maybe different passages of Scripture. But they are important. Just We need to be reminded of them, especially this morning as we go into communion. These are three spiritual lessons that should be upon our hearts as we prepare prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And for the first lesson, I actually want you to begin with me at verses 3 and 4. Since verses 3 to 5 is what led to David's glorious testimony in verses 1 and 2, which we're going to look at a little bit later. So look with me at what he says there, first of all, in verses 3 and 4. He says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. What do you notice in those verses we just read? What's the lesson that we can learn? It's simply this. There are consequences to your sin. There are consequences to your sin. You know, it is said that from the time David sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah to the time that he actually addressed it in Psalm 51 was about a year. Notice what it says there at the beginning of verse 3. When I kept, what? Silent about my sin. And so, yes, there was a season where he simply ignored it. Or he tried to cover it up. However, as a result, David experienced physical, mental, and emotional calamities. Spiritual consequences as a result. He went on to say there in verse 3, My body wasted away. Think about that. My body wasted away. Likely, he was not eating or sleeping due to the guilt that was on his heart. Also, he said he was groaning all day long. Wow. Crying out in distress. Shedding lots of tears. And then in verse 4, he confessed that his vitality 
was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Literally, his life juices were dried up. He had no joy or strength. He was miserable. The combination of these phrases, as he expresses them from his heart, declares the consequences that he's facing in his soul. Look back with me at Psalm 31, verses 8 to 10. And you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my body has wasted away. Turn with me to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. Both of these are Psalms of David where he's describing this awful experience that he is facing because of his sin, because of his iniquity. He's facing the consequences that God has pressed upon his heart and life due to his sin. And by the way, these aren't the only passages. We see it a number of times in the Psalms. I just got done reading through the Psalms the past couple of months. And I see this over and over again, not just with David, but with other psalmists as well. But look what he says in the first eight verses of Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger, for your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand is pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin, for my iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, for my loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. So what you have here is the chastening hand of God upon the believer. David even said there at the beginning of verse 4, for day and night, what? Your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. He's experiencing the chastening hand of God. You can't be God's child and get away with your sin. You can't because you belong to God. He sees all. And when you're going your own way, no, with no regard for what he has said, he's going to get your attention because you belong to him. I want you to look with me at another example of this in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. And we see the writer of Hebrews speaking to this very thing with believers in the first century regarding their sin. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. The writer says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved of him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Think about that. Those who receive the chastening hand of God, yes, are his children. But those who are not receiving his chastening hand are not his children. Be thankful for that grace, because that's what this is. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Amen and amen. And so, beloved, it is because of God's love and care for you that he disciplines you. And he does this, and how he does this is up to him. See, it's not up to us. It's the one who sees all, (laughs) whom we have to answer to. And so how he disciplines us is up to him. And he does it in a various ways. I think I've told you this before. Warren Wearsby in his book, I believe it is on James, uh, says that either God will bend you, he'll either break you, or he'll bury you. And you see that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11. Many of them were falling asleep Because of the Lord's discipline. I'm not talking about taking a nap. They were dying prematurely. And beloved, it's all for the purpose of drawing you back to Him, being restored and bearing the fruits of righteousness. That's a blessing. And so, beloved, could it be that right now you are receiving the correction of the Lord? Sure. Yeah. I don't know what's going on in your private life, but God does. Yeah. Could he be chastening you? Sure. So don't let pride or your sinful desires lead you down a hard road and keep from addressing your heart. I say that because the more you do that, your heart gets hardened and it becomes harder. Instead, may the love of God penetrate your very being and lead you to please Him. There are consequences to your sin. That's the first lesson. David realized that. But he's not done. Let's learn about another lesson. There in verse 5, as he goes on to speak, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions, to the Lord. What seems obvious here? What's the next lesson? It's this. There needs to be confession for your sin. Yeah, there needs to be confession for your sin. And no doubt, this is in contrast to what David said at the beginning of verse 3, when he said, when I kept silent about my sin. He's no longer keeping silent. No, the Lord put His hand upon him And it led to him confessing and acknowledging his sin. 
He finally came to the point of no longer concealing or hiding it, but acknowledging and confessing it before the Lord. Now, how did this come about? Because we don't see that quite clearly here in this passage. How did this come about? How did he get to the point where he finally acknowledged his sin before the Lord? Well, number one, he was a believer. So he was a man after God's own heart. I think that's important for us to understand here. Number two, as already noted, God disciplined him. Yeah, he did. We saw that. But third, God brought Nathan the prophet to rebuke him. Yeah. God used the prophet to confront him. And that too helped bring him to the point of acknowledging his sin and repenting before God. You know, sometimes God uses the church, leadership in the church, to confront you. Yeah, that's what Matthew 18 is all about, right? Yeah. So it's no different here. As it was in the Old Testament, it is in the New Testament. And so a result of this grace, and by the way, again, this is grace. David saw his sin as God saw it. And how did God see his sin? Evil, corrupt, rebellious. And he cast it before him. What you see here in verse 5 is a man who no longer wanted to remain in his sin. He wanted to forsake it for the glory of God. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says these words, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I love that verse. Because he's not just talking about confession. Because with confession is the idea that I also will be what? Forsaking it. They go hand in hand. And that's what repentance is all about. A beautiful illustration of this is Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Remember? Holding your space here, go with me to Luke 15. I want us to see that. Luke 15. Luke 15. And by the way, I do want to say up front that in this chapter, Jesus is teaching his listeners about what happens when a lost soul comes for salvation. He's talking here about the lost coin and then the lost sheep and then about a lost son. So these parables, okay, are, are about salvation. But let us keep in mind that what begins at salvation continues on in our sanctification, right? So when we repent unto salvation, that's going to continue on in our sanctification too as well. Because we know the Lord and we want to have a pure heart before Him. We want to be cleansed. So I want you to see just how this is all pictured here in this passage of Scripture through the prodigal son. Starting with verse 11. And he said, that is Jesus, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country. And he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. 
And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, this is where repentance begins. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And by the way, that's a picture of our father when there's true repentance in our hearts. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. And he was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Yeah, they celebrated. He was restored. This is a wonderful event. And so, beloved, is it possible this morning that you are holding on and or concealing some sin in your life? As I said before, I'll say it again. God sees it. He does. And this is really what matters, isn't it? Because in the end, you're going to have to answer to him. Not to someone in the church. Not to the leadership of the church. But you're going to have to answer to God. That should put the fear of God into our souls. So many times when I talk with different individuals for counseling and they refuse to repent and continue to go on, I have to remind them that God sees all and that he's the one they're going to have to answer. I want them to fear him and turn not for my sake, but for his sake and for his glory. So fear him by confessing and forsaking your sin. And beloved, you'll know the joy of the third lesson. Which brings us to the last part of verse 5. Notice what it says. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. David here is recalling what he said at the beginning of the psalm. How he ends is how he began. What did he say at the beginning? This is his glorious testimony. I told you I was coming back to it. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What is clear here? What's the lesson? There is cleansing for your sin. There is cleansing for your sin. Isn't that wonderful, beloved? Huh? Yes, it is. And this cleansing is expressed by David through a number of phrases here in this passage. Each one speaking synonymously. But he's doing it from a different perspective. For example... 
He began by saying there at the beginning of the psalm, whose transgression is forgiven. He says that on the front end and he says that on the back end. The word forgiven means to lift up and bear away. God cleanses repentant hearts by taking the burden and guilt of sin away from them. It's kind of like removing a backpack. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress or at least watched the movie, huh? What is he doing? He's, he's carrying a backpack, which is to resemble what? Sin. So he's carrying this burden. I can remember when I did a lot of backpacking, okay? Used to put about 70 pounds on my back and, and, and go hiking. Nine miles in a, in a given day. And by the way, I didn't do that all at once. Okay, I was stopping at intervals. Whew, and I was removing that backpack. And when I did, I could jump higher than I did at the beginning. Because I felt so free. I felt so light. That is what happens. Yes. When that guilt is removed and we're cleansed. That burden has been lifted, carried away by God. That's His grace. And then David said here, whose sin is covered. Covered, as it were, by the blood of an innocent substitute. Yeah. As you know, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices offered and blood shed to satisfy God's wrath and cleanse from sin. And of course, these sacrifices pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, right? As Hebrews points out. There's nothing like this. Our sin is covered because of the blood of Christ. God's wrath has been lifted. We no longer face the penalty for our sin. Wow. Oh my. <laughs> also, David expressed, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Impute is a banking term which speaks of bringing to one's account, okay? And so when God, through Christ, cleanses the believer, he or she is, to, is said to have their sin sort of re, erased from the books, so to speak. In fact, you have the righteousness of Christ to cover it. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. At the moment of my salvation, it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He removes our sin and He replaces it with His righteousness. That is wonderful. And so because of His righteousness and because we are covered with that, we can go to the Lord regularly and be restored. And know his forgiveness and his cleansing. And finally, David wrote, in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is simply about having a pure heart because one has come clean with their sin. This is wonderful. All these phrases are speaking to the same thing, but just from a different perspective so that you have a full picture of what it is like to be cleansed by God. And so this man, after God's own heart, had not only come to know God's cleansing and salvation, but also, as we see here, in his everyday walk as a believer. Because he had dealt with his sins sincerely and appropriately, the joy of his salvation 
was restored. I love that verse in, in Psalm 51. We read it this morning, verse 12. What did David say? Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He hadn't lost his salvation. No, he's praying there that the joy of his salvation would be restored. He lost that joy, as we read very clearly here in Psalm 32. He's miserable. But when his sin was cleansed, then that joy was restored. And so it's no wonder that he said here, how blessed, how blessed. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice. The stress, how wonderful it is. He was exclaiming how truly happy he was that his guilt was gone and that peace reigned in his heart. You know, there's no better place to be. (laughs) No, there isn't. I think for us who have sinned and have experienced that cleansing, you know what I'm saying is right. There is no better place. The worst place is to be miserable. No fellowship with the Lord. Experiencing the spiritual consequences of our sin. God's hand is heavy upon us. He's grieved. Yeah. Well, but I would venture to say that all of you want to know God's cleansing on a regular basis, right? Sure. But it does get interrupted by sin. Maybe some of you have lacked peace for some time and haven't enjoyed fellowship with God. It doesn't have to remain that way. May God help you to address your sin as David, which is summed up for us, really, in James 4, 8 to 10. Listen to these words. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Yes, He will. Where sin abounded, what does the scriptures tell us? Grace abounds much more. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Yeah. That flood is there all the time. You know, I think sometimes we as Christians will come to the Lord, we'll confess our sins, and then maybe the next day or so we we fail again. And so we come and we ask forgiveness. We acknowledge our sin. We're sincere about it. And then we fall again. By the third or fourth time, we're saying, what's the use anymore? I think I'm going to just forget this. I just keep falling back. That's not what the Lord wants. He wants to hear your heart. In fact, in Psalm 51, verse 17, I love these words. It says this. Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, what? You will not despise. You will not despise. Yes. I want you to remember that. You know, D.L. Moody simply said one time, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. Yeah. Or sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. This morning, the voice of sin may be loud in your heart as a believer. This is because of its consequences, which really is God's loving hand and His grace 
to draw you near to Him and know the louder voice of cleansing. Yeah. And so I pray that as we celebrate communion today, you will be confessing your sin before the Lord and experiencing the great joy of restored fellowship. That's what He wants from you. And so may the Lord lead in that way this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. God, we've heard these simple truths before, but we do need to be reminded of them. I pray that our souls have been enriched by the truth of Your Word. God, where sin abounds, your grace abounds all the more. Remind us of this, even when we fail time and time again. God, when we confess and forsake sincerely from our hearts, God, you do cleanse and restore fellowship. So keep us tender in our hearts. God, dealing with the issues that are there for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.